0: Chapter One of Cranford. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Noel Badrian. Cranford by Elizabeth Gaskell. Our Society. In the first place, Cranford is in possession of the Amazons. All the holders of houses above a certain rent are women. If a married couple comes to settle in the town, somehow the gentleman disappears. He is either fairly frightened to death by being the only man in the Cranford evening parties, or he is accounted for by being with his regiment, his ship, or closely engaged in business all the week in the great neighbouring commercial town of Drumble, distant only twenty miles on a railroad in short whatever does become of the gentlemen they are not at cranford what could they do if they were there the surgeon has his rounds of thirty miles and sleeps at cranford but every man cannot be a surgeon for keeping the trim gardens full of choice flowers without a weed to speck them for frightening away little boys who look wistfully at the said flowers through the railings for rushing out at the geese that occasionally venture into the gardens if the gates are left open for deciding all questions of literature and politics without troubling themselves with unnecessary reasons or arguments for obtaining clear and correct knowledge of everybody's affairs in the parish for keeping their neat maidservants in admirable order for kindness somewhat dictatorial to the poor and real tender good offices to each other whenever they are in distress the ladies of cranford are quite sufficient a man as one of them observed to me once is so in the way in the house. Although the ladies of Cranford know all each other's proceedings, they are exceedingly indifferent to each other's opinions. Indeed as each has her own individuality, not to say eccentricity, pretty strongly developed, nothing is so easy as verbal retaliation. But somehow goodwill reigns among them to a considerable degree. The Cranford ladies have only an occasional little quarrel, spirited out in a few peppery words and angry jerks of the head, just enough to prevent the even tenor of their lives from becoming too flat. Their dress is very independent of fashion. As they observe, what does it signify how we dress here at Cranford, where everybody knows us? And if they go from home, their reason is equally cogent. What does it signify how we dress here? when nobody knows us. The material of their clothes are, in general, good and plain, and most of them are nearly as scrupulous as Miss Tyler, of cleanly memory. But I will answer for it that the last shigo, the last tight and scanty petticoat in wear in England, was seen in Cranford, and seen without a smile. I can testify to a magnificent family red silk umbrella under which a gentle little spinster left alone of many brothers and sisters used to patter to church on rainy days have you any red silk umbrellas in london we had a tradition of the first that had ever been seen in cranford and the little boys mobbed it and called it a stick in petticoats it might have been the very red silk one i have described held by a strong father over a troop of little ones the poor little lady the survivor of all could scarcely carry it then there were the rules and regulations for visiting and calls and they were announced to any young people who might be staying in the town with all the solemnity with which the old manx laws were read once a year on the Tinwald mount our friends have sent to inquire how you are after your journey to-night my dear Fifteen miles in a gentleman's carriage. They will give you some rest to-morrow, but the next day, I have no doubt, they will call, so be at liberty after twelve. From twelve to three are our calling hours. Then, after they had called, it is the third day. I dare say your mamma has told you, my dear, never to let more than three days elapse between receiving a call and returning it. And also, that you are never to stay longer than a quarter of an hour. But am I to look at my watch? How am I to find out when a quarter of an hour has passed? You must keep thinking about the time, my dear, and not allow yourself to forget it in conversation. As everybody had this rule in their minds when they received or paid a call, of course no absorbing subject was ever spoken about. We kept ourselves to short sentences of small talk, and were punctual to our time. I imagine that a few of the gentlefolks of Cranford were poor, and had some difficulty in making both ends meet, but they were like the Spartans, and concealed their smart under a smiling face. We none of us spoke of money, because that subject savoured of commerce and trade, and, though some might be poor, we were all aristocratic. The Cranfordians had that kindly esprit de corps which made them overlook all deficiencies in success when some among them tried to conceal their poverty. When Mrs. Forrester, for instance, gave a party in her baby-house of a dwelling, and the little maiden disturbed the ladies on the sofa by a request that she might get the tea-tray out from underneath, everyone took this novel proceeding as the most natural thing in the world and talked on about household forms and ceremonies as if we all believed that our hostess had a regular servants hall second table with housekeeper and steward instead of the one little charity school maiden whose short ruddy arms could never have been strong enough to carry the tray upstairs if she had not been assisted in private by her mistress who now sat in state pretending not to know what cakes were sent up though she knew and we knew, and she knew that we knew, and we knew that she knew that we knew she had been busy all the morning making tea bread and sponge cakes. There were one or two consequences arising from this general but unacknowledged poverty, and this very much acknowledged gentility, which were not amiss, and which might be introduced into many circles of society to their great improvement. For instance, The inhabitants of Cranford kept early hours, and clattered home in their patterns, under the guidance of a lantern-bearer, about nine o'clock at night, and the whole town was abed and asleep by half-past ten. Moreover, it was considered vulgar, a tremendous word in Cranford, to give anything expensive in the way of eatable or drinkable, at the evening entertainments wafer bread-and-butter and and sponge-biscuits were all that the honourable mrs jamieson gave and she was sister-in-law to the late earl of glenmire although she did practise such elegant economy elegant economy how naturally one falls back into the phraseology of cranford there economy was always elegant and money-spending always vulgar and ostentatious a sort of sour-grapism which made us very peaceful and satisfied i never shall forget the dismay felt when a certain captain brown came to live at cranford and openly spoke about his being poor not in a whisper to an intimate friend the doors and windows being previously closed but in the public street in a loud military voice alleging his poverty as a reason for not taking a particular house The ladies of cranford were already rather moaning over the invasion of their territories by a man and a gentleman he was a half-pay captain and had obtained some situation on a neighbouring railroad which had been vehemently petitioned against by the little town and if in addition to his masculine gender and his connections with the obnoxious railroad he was so brazen as to talk of being poor why then indeed he must be sent to Coventry. death was as true and as common as poverty yet people never spoke about that loud out in the streets it was a word not to be mentioned to ears polite we had tacitly agreed to ignore that any with whom we associated on terms of visiting equality could ever be prevented by poverty from doing anything that they wished if we walked to or from a party it was because the night was so fine or the air so refreshing not because sedan chairs were expensive if we wore prints instead of summer silks it was because we preferred a washing material and so on till we blinded ourselves to the vulgar fact that we were all of us people of very moderate means of course Then we did not know what to make of a man who could speak of poverty as if it was not a disgrace. Yet somehow Captain Brown made himself respected in Cranford, and was called upon in spite of all resolutions to the contrary. I was surprised to hear his opinion quoted as authority at a visit which I paid to Cranford about a year after he had settled in the town. My own friends had been among the bitterest opponents of any proposal to visit the captain and his daughters only twelve months before, and now he was even admitted in the tabooed hours before twelve. True, it was to discover the cause of a smoking chimney before the fire was lighted, but still Captain Brown walked upstairs, nothing daunted, spoke in a voice too large for the room, and joked quite in the way of a tame man about the house. He had been blind to all the small slights and omissions of trivial ceremonies with which he had been received. He had been friendly, though the Cranford ladies had been cool, he had answered small sarcastic compliments in good faith, and with his manly frankness had overpowered all the shrinking which met him as a man who was not ashamed to be poor and at last his excellent masculine common sense and his facility in devising expedients to overcome domestic dilemmas had gained him an extraordinary place as an authority among the cranford ladies he himself went on in his course as unaware of his popularity as he had been of the reverse and i am sure he was startled one day when he found his advice so highly esteemed as to make some counsel which he had given in jest to be taken in sober serious earnest it was on this subject an old lady had an alderney cow which she looked upon as a daughter you could not pay the short quarter of an hour call without being told of the wonderful milk or wonderful intelligence of this animal The whole town knew and kindly regarded Miss Betsy Barker's Aldenay. Therefore great was the sympathy and regret, when in an unguarded moment the poor cow tumbled into a lime-pit. She moaned so loudly that she was soon heard and rescued, but meanwhile the poor beast had lost most of her hair, and came out looking naked, cold and miserable, in a bare skin. Everybody pitied the animal, though a few could not restrain their smiles at her droll appearance. Miss Betsy Barker absolutely cried with sorrow and dismay, and it was said she thought of trying a bath of oil. This remedy, perhaps, was recommended by some one of the number whose advice she asked. But the proposal, if ever it was made, was knocked on the head by Captain Brown's decided, Get her a flannel waistcoat at flannel drawers, ma'am if you wish to keep her alive but my advice is kill the poor creature at once miss betsy barker dried her eyes and thanked the captain heartily she set to work and by and by all the town turned out to see the aldenay meekly going to her pasture clad in dark grey flannel i have watched her myself many a time do you ever see cows dressed in grey flannel in london captain brown had taken a small house on the outskirts of the town where he lived with his two daughters he must have been upwards of sixty at the time of the first visit i paid to cranford after i had left it as a residence but he had a wiry well-trained elastic figure a stiff military throwback of his head and a springing step which made him appear much younger than he was His eldest daughter looked almost as old as himself, and betrayed the fact that his real was more than his apparent age. Miss Brown must have been forty. She had a sickly, pained, careworn expression on her face, and looked as if the gaiety of youth had long faded out of sight. Even when young she must have been plain and hard-featured. Miss Jessie Brown was ten years younger than her sister, and twenty shades prettier her face was round and dimpled. Miss Jenkins once said, in a passion against Captain Brown, the cause of which I will tell you presently, that she thought it was time for Miss Jessie to leave off her dimples, and not always to be trying to look like a child. It was true there was something childlike in her face, and there will be, I think, till she dies, though she should live to a hundred. Her eyes were large blue wondering eyes, looking straight at you. Her nose was unformed and snub, and her lips were red and dewy. She wore her hair, too, in little rows of curls, which heightened this appearance. I do not know whether she was pretty or not, but I liked her face, and so did everybody, and I do not think she could help her dimples. She had something of her father's jauntiness of gait and manner and any female observer might detect a slight difference in the attire of the two sisters, that of Miss Jessie being about two pounds per annum more expensive than Miss Brown's. Two pounds was a large sum in Captain Brown's annual disbursements. Such was the impression made upon me by the Brown family when I first saw them all together in Cranford Church the captain i had met before on the occasion of the smoky chimney which he had cured by some simple alteration in the flue in church he held his double eyeglass to his eyes during the morning hymn and then lifted up his head erect and sang out loud and joyfully he made the responses louder than the clock an old man with a piping feeble voice who i think felt aggrieved at the captain's sonorous bass and quivered higher and higher in consequence on coming out of church the brisk captain paid the most gallant attention to his two daughters he nodded and smiled to his acquaintances but he shook hands with none until he had helped miss brown to unfurl her umbrella and relieved her of her prayer book and had waited patiently till she with trembling nervous hands had taken up her gown to walk through the wet roads i wonder what the cranford ladies did with captain brown at their parties we had often rejoiced in former days that there was no gentleman to be attended to and to find conversation for at the card-parties we had congratulated ourselves upon the snugness of the evenings and in our love for gentility and distaste of mankind, we had almost persuaded ourselves that to be a man was to be vulgar, so that when I found my friend and hostess, Miss Jenkins, was going to have a party in my honour, and that Captain and the Miss Browns were invited, I wondered much what would be the course of the evening. Card tables with green baize tops were set out by daylight just as usual. It was the third week in November so the evenings closed in about four. Candles and clean packs of cards were arranged on each table. The fire was made up, the neat maid servant had received her last directions, and there we stood, dressed in our best, each with a candle-lighter in our hands, ready to dart at the candles as soon as the first knock came. Parties in Cranford, were solemn festivities, making the ladies feel gravely elated as they sat together in their best dresses. As soon as three had arrived we sat down to preference, I being the unlucky fourth. The next four comers were put down immediately to another table, and presently the tea-trays, which I had seen set out in the storeroom as I passed in the morning, were placed each on the middle of a card-table the china was delicate eggshell the old-fashioned silver glittered with polishing but the eatables were of the slightest description while the trays were yet on the tables captain and the miss browns came in and i could see that somehow or other the captain was a favorite with all the ladies present ruffled brows were smoothed, sharp voices lowered at his approach miss brown looked ill and depressed almost to gloom miss jessie smiled as usual and seemed nearly as popular as her father he immediately and quietly assumed the man's place in the room attended to every one's wants lessened the pretty maid-servant's labour by waiting on empty cups and bread and butterless ladies and yet did it all in so easy and dignified a manner and so much as if it were a matter of course for the strong to attend to the weak that he was a true man throughout He played for threepenny points, with as grave an interest as if they had been pounds, and yet in all his attention to strangers he had an eye on his suffering daughter, for suffering I was sure she was, though to many eyes she might only appear to be irritable. Miss Jessie could not play cards, but she talked to the sitters out, who, before her coming, had been rather inclined to be cross. She sang, too, to an old cracked piano which I think had been a spinet in its youth. Miss Jessie sang Jock of Hazeldean a little out of tune, but we were none of us musical, though Miss Jenkins beat time out of time by way of appearing to be so. It was very good of Miss Jenkins to do this, for I had seen that, a little before, she had been a good deal annoyed by Miss Jessie Brown's unguarded admission, apropos of Shetland Wool, that she had an uncle, her mother's brother, who was a shopkeeper in Edinburgh. Miss Jenkins tried to drown this confession by a terrible cough, for the Honourable Mrs. Jamieson was sitting at a card table nearest Miss Jessie, and what would she say or think if she found out she was in the same room with a shopkeeper's niece? But Miss Jessie Brown, who had no tact, as we all agreed the next morning, would repeat the information, and assure Miss Pole she could easily get her the identical Shetland wool required, through my uncle, who has the best assortment of Shetland goods of anyone in Edinburgh. It was to take the taste of this out of our mouths, and the sound of this out of our ears, that Miss Jenkins proposed music. So I say again. It was very good of her to beat time to the song. When the trays reappeared with biscuits and wine, punctually at a quarter to nine, there was conversation, comparing of cards and talking over tricks, but by and by Captain Brown sported a little of literature. Have you seen any numbers of the Pickwick Papers? said he. They were then publishing it in parts. Capital thing! now miss jenkins was daughter of a deceased rector of cramford and on the strength of a number of manuscript sermons and a pretty good library of divinity considered herself literary and looked upon any conversation about books as a challenge to her so she answered and said yes she had seen them indeed she might say she had read them and what do you think of them exclaimed captain brown aren't they famously good so urged miss jenkins could not but speak i must say i don't think they are by any means equal to dr johnson still perhaps the author is young let him persevere and who knows what he may become if he will take the great doctor for his model this was evidently too much for captain brown to take placidly and i saw the words on the tip of his tongue before miss jenkins had finished her sentence it is quite a different sort of thing my dear madam he began i am quite aware of that returned she and i make allowances captain brown just allow me to read you a scene out of this month's number pleaded he i had it only this morning and i don't think the company can have read it yet as you please said she settling herself with an air of resignation he read the account of the swarry which samuela gave at bath some of us laughed heartily i did not dare because i was staying in the house miss jenkins sat in patient gravity when it was ended she turned to me and said with mild dignity fetch me rasselas my dear out of the book room when i had brought it to her she turned to captain brown now allow me to read you a scene and then the present company can judge between your favourite, Mr. Boz, and Dr. Johnson. She read one of the conversations between Rasselas and Imlac in a high-pitched, majestic voice, and when she had ended she said, I imagine I am now justified in my preference of Dr. Johnson as a writer of fiction. The captain screwed his lips up and drummed on the table, but he did not speak she thought she would give him a finishing blow or two i consider it vulgar and blow the dignity of literature to publish in numbers how was the rambler published ma'am asked captain brown in a low voice which i think miss jenkins could not have heard dr johnson's style is a model for young beginners my father recommended it to me when i began to write letters i have formed my own style upon it i recommend it to your favourite i should be very sorry for him to exchange his style for any such pompous writing said captain brown miss jenkins felt this as a personal affront in a way of which the captain had not dreamed epistolatory writing she and her friends considered as her forte many a copy of many a letter have i seen written and corrected on the slate before she seized the half-hour just previous to post-time to assure her friends of this or that and dr johnson was as she said her model in these compositions she drew herself up with dignity and only replied to captain brown's last remark by saying with marked emphasis on every syllable i prefer dr johnson to mr boz it is said I won't vouch for the fact that Captain Brown was heard to say, sotto of voice, Damn Dr. Johnson! If he did, he was penitent afterwards, as he showed by going to stand near Miss Jenkins' armchair, and endeavouring to beguile her into conversation on some more pleasing subject. But she was inexorable. The next day she made the remark I have mentioned about Miss Jessie's dimples. End of chapter 1